In this episode, an Australian cyber force, Fergus Hansen talks to Scott George on the future of the cyber workforce. Paul Barnes and John Coyne discuss managing biosecurity threats. Laughter at Unger. Lisa Sharland unpacks Trump's speech to the United Nations. But first up, our roving reporter Brendan Nicholson talks to our resident grumpy strategist Marcus on conventional versus nuclear submarines. You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. Right, Marcus, you produce some interesting material on nuclear versus conventional submarines. Going back to 2009 and the Defence White Paper produced by the Rudd government, it was made clear that Australia needs very long-range submarines, the longest-range submarines in the world. What we have planned uh, will be very large submarines to get the distance, to carry the fuel to get the distance. I remember um, analysts commenting at the time of the 2009 White Paper that the idea intention was to make them as effective as a nuclear submarine, but they'd be conventionally powered. Have we gone the wrong way? Should we be having nuclear submarines? That's a very interesting question, Brendan. And judging by the ongoing discussion, um, a lot of people are interested in that. It's an issue that continues to bubble along. It sort of fades away and then comes back again. I think the one thing that all commentators agree upon is that SSN, so nuclear-powered submarines, are better suited to give us the capability we want. You're right in saying when you look at all the things we want to do with a submarine, the other countries in the world that want to do those sorts of things go nuclear. Now, the problem is is that they can because they have nuclear industries and Australia doesn't. And so that's why uh, we've ended up with uh, where we are with a future submarine project, which is essentially designing a very, very large, very long-range conventional submarine. And we are in some ways attempting to replicate the capabilities of a nuclear submarine with a conventional boat. Now, does that mean we should junk the future submarine project and suddenly embark on the path of nuclear boats, I think that would be a big mistake at this point in time. So it's not simply a matter like a family deciding that they would trade in their petrol sedan for a diesel one. There's huge differences, presumably. There are huge differences. The, the Because we've never seriously had the nuclear debate in this country about nuclear uh, powered boats. There's no agreed baseline, I think, of information that everyone can refer to, and there's no agreed set of assumptions that everyone can refer to. It's interesting that um, former Prime Minister Tony Abbott last year said we should be going down the nuclear path, which is interesting because when he was Prime Minister, he made a captain's call and said we should just go and buy Japanese conventional boats. Now he's out of government, he's sort of got a different view. But one of the things he said was that, you know, we've never really looked at this issue. And and that's right. So that means different commentators can have diametrically opposed views. So just very, very basic questions such as, would the United States sell us nuclear boats? There are very strongly held views saying yes and also one saying no. Uh, strongly held views on, well, if they won't sell us boats, will they at least sell us the technology and we can build our own boats? Again, strongly held views. 
on either side. A very fundamental point that people can't agree on is how much of a civil nuclear sector do you need to safely operate the boats here? And again, no uh, agreement on that issue as well. So the problem is, is that it's hard to have a, a debate when everybody is starting at you know very different positions. Well, presumably the American Navy has a significant proportion of crews like um, captains of nuclear submarines who are very highly qualified. Some are nuclear physicists and they have a range of very highly qualified nuclear technicians on each submarine. Now, how long would it take us to develop well, the educational processes and, and, and send people through, presumably people now in high school, persuade them to take up nuclear physics and look at a career in the Navy? This would be a very long process, presumably. It would be a very long process. And uh, retired Admiral Peter Briggs has been working on a piece for Aspie, which we'll be publishing next month, trying to work through some of these issues about what... Peter Briggs is a strong advocate for nuclear submarines, and but he identifies some of the key challenges we'd need to overcome, such as training your workforce, not just the uniform workforce on the boats themselves, but a, a broader civil workforce so that you have the requisite, you know, safety structures in place so that you can regulate the whole enterprise. You know, and it is a long time. So probably if you look at the chief engineer on a nuclear US nuclear submarine, you know, it's taken them 18 years to get to that point. So this is not something that we could do overnight. If we look at also the history of the US nuclear submarine enterprise, safety has come first for uh, there. And so you need to think very carefully about the infrastructure you need, the skill sets you need, the workforce you need to do it right. And I think the Australian public would you know, have an expectation that we're doing it right and doing it safely. If you look at the Australian public, they're very hesitant to even have uh, waste facilities for, you know, medical nuclear waste, which is very low grade nuclear waste. They're very hesitant to have storage facilities in their own state. If you then uh, expect them to host a fleet of, you know, eight or 12 nuclear reactors in their local port, they're going to have some issues around that if they're not absolutely convinced, A, of the capability necessity for it, and they can be reassured that it's going to be safe. Well, that sort of political debate in the past has scuppered ideas like nuclear power stations. You know, do you want one in every electorate in, in the country? The, there's another issue in terms of us possibly getting leasing or buying nuclear submarines from the Americans. If we don't have the skilled crews, we presumably would need to borrow crews and possibly captains from the United States or elsewhere. And would this raise serious sovereignty issues? Mm -hmm. So... The idea of leasing boats, at least as a temporary measure, is one that's also come up. It's also another one of those ones where there's no agreed position with people saying, yes, the US would do it and no, the US wouldn't do it. But it does raise the sovereignty issue. And that is if you have a leased boat and a part of the crew, maybe the back end crew handling the propulsion system are Americans, it does potentially um, impose sovereignty issues on Australia. So the goal, I think, would have to be eventually you would move to it being a sovereign Australian-owned capability. But in my view, we would always be very heavily dependent on whatever country sold us the technology, whether it was the US or, 
or France. I mean, we just don't have a civil nuclear sector, so you'd be very dependent on uh, technology and know-how from that country. So it would, in my view, impose uh, significant sovereignty limitations upon us. Again, does that mean you shouldn't do it? Um, hard to say. That's you know another reason we need we should have a, a proper debate to actually understand these core issues and develop a kind of you know baseline of agreed assumptions around it. The Collins class submarine program was largely rubbished politically, and the impression's been left with many Australians that we have dud submarines. How good is the Collins? Well, Collins is a very good submarine, and uh, according to many experts, it's the best conventional submarine in the world. Um, you know, as capable even as you know the Japanese conventional submarines. So, and we've defence has put a lot of money into upgrading the capability. A number of reviews have been conducted, suggesting ways to improve the sustainment of the Collins. So now it's getting, it's hitting or is close to international benchmarks for availability. So it's a very good submarine. It's a about as good as it's ever going to get in terms of availability. It's probably in the sweet spot now, actually, in terms of its capability. We understand it. We operate it well. The systems are, you know, cutting edge in many ways. The question is going to be, how do we keep the Collins going over the next 20 to 25 years in the transition to the future submarine? And if people think that somehow we can um, reduce that transition time by scrapping the future submarine project and not getting the French conventional submarine and suddenly going out and buying US nuclear boats, I think that's a mistaken view. If for some reason the government decided today to scrap the future submarine project and go nuclear instead, it's not going to save us any time. It's going to take even longer. So we need to accept the fact we're going to have Collins for a very, very long time to come. And everything we do in the submarine transition process needs to be focused on how we keep Collins going. One of the apartments' basic range, one of the issues with a conventional submarine is the fact that it needs to surface regularly to, or come up near the surface mm -hmm. to recharge its batteries. With the development of technology like lithium-ion batteries and, and similar types of technology, are we going to get to the point where the necessity for a submarine to surface or come near the surface and expose itself to an enemy becomes stretched further and further out? Well, you can do stuff with lithium-ion batteries um, and air-independent propulsion to increase the underwater endurance of a conventional submarine, but you can never fully eliminate the need to surface and I think eventually that will become the key discriminator between conventional submarines and nuclear submarines. Marcus, thanks very much. Thank you, Brendan. Fergus Hansen sat down with Scott George, former Deputy Chief of the US National Security Agency and Director of Intelligence for US Strategic Command. Well, thank you very much for joining us, General. It's a real pleasure to have you on the ASPE podcast. I was wondering if we could start out, um, if you could tell us a little bit about this idea of the innovation economy. And you've talked about this organize, how the US does this and has this interface between the government and the tech sector. What does that look like in the United States and wh why is that role so important in terms of uh, building those bridges? Absolutely. I, I maintain that in the US and a lot of the Western uh, world, we're really in a post-industrial uh, phase and we're more focused on intellectual capital and intellectual property and so the reason that's important the innovation economy which in the US is primarily Silicon Valley Austin Texas and Boston Massachusetts 
they are kind of leading the world in many ways with information technology, which is everything from the cyber domain, cybersecurity, to artificial intelligence, and the full spectrum of information technologies. And so it's important because we have to maintain the technology flow between the East Coast and the West Coast. So the innovation economy primarily on the West Coast, the federal government and the federal workspace. And so I'm passionate about trying to make sure that the gap between the two doesn't grow and that we break down the walls because the technology is changing so quickly. You know, with Moore's Law and the ability to change and transform technology in 18 months to two years, the microprocessor uh, doubling in speed, you've got to make sure that you are tapped into all of those different pools of technology. So another really interesting idea that you've put out is this idea of creating a cyber force. So we'd have an army, a navy, an air force, and a cyber force as well. Here in Australia, we've got the Information Warfare Division as a, as a joint capability. Why are you making this case that we need to start breaking out these, these cyber units and turning into them into their own force in their own right? What's, what's the rationale behind that? If you go back in history and you look at 1918, uh, Brigadier General Billy Mitchell uh, in 1918 made a very impassioned case for air power to be broken away from the Army Air Corps and an independent air power. And his view was air power at the time was really limited. Uh, the Army primarily looked at air power in very limited roles, and he saw a, a much greater vision for air power to be utilized across the full spectrum of combat operations. And so I think 100 years later, 2018, we're in a very similar role. I think technology is moving so quickly, and I think by taking components and putting cyber components in the services, it certainly can work. I think it's suboptimal. I think the services are focused on their core mission areas, their primacy. So the, the Air Force is about primarily about uh, aerial combat. It certainly has cyber capability. Army is land operations. The Navy is uh, sea, submariner warfare. And so I think cyber is still viewed more in a support role versus a pure, this is the focal point, the focal domain for combat operations. And I believe that if you create a, a cyber force that is independent of the old services, you can really develop the skill set. You can change the way you access people, train people, manage people, career force manage, because it's completely different than the way you're going to do it in the Air Force or the Navy or the Army. The traditional young enlisted troop that goes into one of the um, traditional services will do some time in their primary MOS or FSCs, which is their designator for what they do. Um, but then they'll go off and, and do other things. They'll become a recruiter. They'll go to a training uh, command. I would argue that you can't afford to do that in cyber. Cyber is, um, it, the information and the knowledge base is so tenuous and it, it, it's fleeting that if you do not keep someone in that specific domain with the right certifications, if they go away for two or three years, they're not going to come back and be as capable. There's also the problem with uh, the, the types of folks we're going to have to go out and actually acquire are different than what we're all used to. I, I always make a joke and say that um, you're not going to see the steely-eyed, high and tight, blue-eyed Marine at Camp Blue June in most cyber units. And that's okay. But we, we would have to change and alter the way we manage them. You know, physical fitness standards probably wouldn't be the same. Um, some of the lifestyle uh, security issues that are a problem in DOD right now may have to change. 
And so it's just changing the prism and having a force that is completely focused on cyber expertise. I think it makes a lot of sense. I'll give you a classic example. Right now in DOD, if you are anywhere on the uh, autistic spectrum, uh, you can't enlist. And ironically, if you go out to Silicon Valley, the high-functioning Asperger community is highly represented. There's a huge percentage of these kids that are in the highest-end technology companies. Um, and they're the, the super freak coders and uh, hackers. So if you go to Google, Microsoft, any of those companies out there, you'll see this workforce. To me, we've, we have to figure out a way to be able to bring that kind of level of talent into the U.S. military. Uh, and I don't think it's a different paradigm. So I think people struggle with how do you do that? And so that's another advantage to having a U.S. cyber force versus trying to apply the traditional, these are the, the things you have to be able to do to come into the Air Force, Army, Navy, Marine Corps. And if I could just do one follow-up around that, we've had this traditional connection between intelligence services and cyber command. And in the U.S., you've had this wrestle to pull out cyber command from NSA and, and create a sort of more dotted line linkage than um, was there before. How do you get around that issue of symbiotic relationship that those two types of operations have in common if you're pulling it out into its own distinct force? Well, a cyber force doesn't necessarily mean cyber command. So, you know, in the U.S. military, our, our forces, our services, their primary role is to command, equip, train, educate, and prepare those troops to then be sent to a combatant command to fight wars. With regards to cyber command and NSA, it's gone through an evolution where I think uh, for a long time it made sense to have one individual. I worked for General Keith Alexander and then Admiral Mike Rogers that were dual-hatted. But I think the importance of cyber command, the importance of the cyber domain for our nation, not just our sec national security, but our entire defense industrial base is so important. The, the thinking was we've got to create an independent combatant command. Right now, Cyber Command is a sub-unified command, and all that means uh, in plain English is it sits under U.S. Strategic Command, but it doesn't have resource authorities like a traditional COCOM. They are starting to gain more of those. So I believe the, the intent there was you've got to pull them up and elevate them to a full combatant command fighting status. Uh, so they are peers with every geographic and functional combatant command. And there are going to be some, some things that have to be managed very carefully because the relationship between NSA and, and Cyber Command is symbiotic in a lot of ways. But I think it can be managed, and I think it's the right thing to do. We're just waiting. The decision, obviously, has already been made, and I think it's just a matter of uh, probably the next few months to six months before it happens. It's difficult to pre predict when that's going to happen, but it's... Uh, already in the National Defense Authorization. One final question around this is, if you here in Australia, we've got this issue, and I'm sure you've got the same questions in the, in the US around talent issues. How do you grow that pot of people that are going to be able to staff these kind of organizations? And if we're looking in Australia, for example, to create our own cyber force, one of the issues that's going to crop up inevitably is talent. So mm -hmm. what are some of the thoughts you've had in terms of how you grow that pot of people, how you reach out to a broader community and bring them in? With the millennial generation, the paradigm has shifted on us. And I, I think we've got to get out of the mindset of trying to figure out strategies to retain people for 20, 25, 30 years, which has traditionally been the model in the U.S. in government. I don't think most of the super high-end kids we're talking about that would be in a cyber force are interested in staying anywhere for 20, 25 years. They don't stay at Google or Microsoft. And so to answer your question, 
we've got to figure out a way to break down walls and have a cross flow, a cross pollinization of young folks, technologists from innovation economy companies into the government and back. I think that does so many different things. It builds trust between the two. It uh, brings a, a greater deal of partnership and it, it keeps the creative juices for these young folks to go back and forth to, between government and the innovation economy. Now, is that going to be easy to do? Absolutely not. It, it means we've got to rethink fundamentally how we do security processes, manage people, but I don't think we really have another uh, choice in the matter. And it, it, in the long run, if we can figure out a way to do it and create that cross flow and cross pollinization, it would be I think a huge benefit for both the federal government side and innovation economy companies. General, thank you so much. My pleasure. Now you'll hear from Jackie, who spoke with John Coyne and Paul Barnes about their latest report on rethinking biosecurity in Australia. Well, welcome to the podcast, John and Paul. I'm very excited to be talking about the report you released this week. Thanks, Jackie. We're really happy about it. It's probably couldn't be a more timely report, given what's happened over the last couple of weeks with the strawberry industry. I was about to say the same thing. I hope it's not the both of you trying to promote your report. <laughs> well, you know, we had this, this sort of commentary before, you know, over the last sort of couple of days by our various people at Aspie. But um, let me assure you, it finds its origins about um, six months ago in, at the uh, International Summit on Borders in Washington, D.C. So maybe, Paul, you can give us a quick overview. Well, Jackie, basically it's about ensuring Australia has an ability to have surprise management when it comes to biosecurity. The strawberry issue at the moment is, is probably just a product tampering thing, a, an internal threat issue. Uh, but the sort of focus that we're looking at here is more emergent biosecurity threats, either from intentional adjustment with food in terms of chemical or biological contamination, and the combination of what we have already in animal and plant health biosecurity and a more recent terrorist-related or criminal and national and international security flavour. That was one of the scariest parts I found in the report, the connection between biosecurity and counterterrorism. So we might have something like bioterrorism. You mentioned that drones might actually be a tool to spread chemical weapons. Um, can you touch upon how this can be countered? Well, can I just start before I pass to John for his views on this? Weaponizing uh, biological material has been done for thousands of years. Sure. You can look historically at the, uh, the impact on the traditional owners of North America when Western uh, people came to those islands and that, that land. The, the idea of biological, well, you know, diseases caused by bacteria and viruses and uh, many economies and many non-state actors have been known to have an interest in using those particular materials as weapons of either mass destruction or certainly disruption in a warfare context. So it's a matter of the source of those particular uh, items rather than naturally occurring disease. John? For me, the big concern globally, the threshold in terms of states and non-state actors over the last 10 years has dropped. Sort of 15 years ago, had we turned around and said that the Russian government would have been involved in using chemical weapons in the UK, uh, people would have would have fallen over. You know, it just, it just wasn't on the realms of possibility. You know, North Korea poisoning someone is another example of that. So, you know, Number one is, is that we see this dropping of the threshold. Number two is that a proliferation globally of the sorts of things that make 
what was 10 years ago, something that you would produce in a lab and need to have you know, a, a science degree and a heavy science background, all of a sudden now, you can get access to a whole range of things. One of the examples we give, for $160 US, you can order yourself a little kit with five samples of E. coli that you can actually genetically modify at home to survive in environments that it's not supposed to survive in. Um, so that's the real sort of thing. Now, when it comes to this drone piece, I think this is what's interesting. You know, we're always looking backwards to this counterterrorism piece in the sense that, you know, could they use drones? Drones are a good example. What it's really about is the innovation piece, and this is what we're talking about. It's that what comes next, how can... So we've, we've got really good at stopping weapons of mass destruction, the precursors of that falling into people's hands. We're exceptional in this country about biosecurity of our agricultural industries. We're asking that next question going... Okay, what if we wanted to do harm to the agriculture industry in Australia, what would we have to do? And what we're seeing is that there's, it's becoming easier and easier and we need to join up those two things we do exceptionally well. Can I just yeah, add sure. to that? One of, one of the opportunities Australia has is to join up the dots of capability. We have very deep and effective capability in animal plant health emergency response into, into those realms as we do with human health and emergency management. The point John made about people being killed in an international airport in, in terms of Kuala Lumpur and uh, uh, North Korea's uh, current leader's uh, half-brother, how can something where a weapon of mass destruction, a nerve agent, a nerve weapon, was applied and delivered to somebody in an international airport. So the idea of border security and the focus of, of keeping the wrong things out of the country through trade and import, but within that international public space, a weapon of mass destruction of severe consequence was applied. So joining the dots up for Australia, what are we good at? Let's make sure that we can deal with the asymmetric threats that we suggest are ready to occur and can occur and make sure we are as, as, as able as we can be uh, and able to respond. You also write in your report that there have been more and more effective counter-proliferation capabilities. Do you have some more examples of what Australia is actually doing? I might start off with, in terms of uh, counter-proliferation, we're exceptionally good at stopping um, the movement of chemicals and access to chemicals, precursors, diseases, samples. So both at the border and in an intelligence sense. So, you know, at the national level, there's a whole range of work that's done in terms of red teaming, in terms of developing indicators and warnings, in terms of looking for these sorts of um, commodities entering Australia or entering the hands regionally or globally of the people who might do us harm. Now, be they state actors like Korea, North Korea or be they um, organisations like IS. Now on the other side of the fence, what we're trying to do is maintain uh, Australia's ecosystem free from a range of diseases. Now that has, has a series of, and Paul will talk in probably in a little bit more detail, a series of, conce of um, concentric circles of protection that start from taking food out right through to how we react. We're unlike the US where you know there are literally hundreds of species that have entered their ecosystem and caused a great deal of financial damage and at times impacted on food security. We're very lucky here. Okay, so maybe Paul you can tell us what are the key messages of the report? Initially, I can say that Australia has a lot of very good capability that is well supported. What needs to happen, though, is to be able to scale the, the forward thinking and the response from local to state and region. So it's a scaled vertical coordination. Uh, the existing capabilities are good. 
The second point I'd like to make is that there is an opportunity to red team and use foresight techniques, futures thinking about where the next emergent asymmetric threat may come from. And from there, we can join the dots of the existing capability and more, be more effective because we have to anticipate, we have to respond very quickly to any disease outbreaks. This is an issue of evolving along with the threat because the threat will evolve and Australia needs to as well. Well, thank you so much for joining me and the link to the report will be in the description below. And finally, Akriti gets all of the details about the United Nations Leaders Week from Lisa Sharland, who heads up our international program. The annual Leaders Week at the United Nations General Assembly is currently underway. I have uh, Lisa Sharlin, the head of ASPE's international program here to uh, help us demystify what is going on and why it's significant. So, uh, Lisa, what do you think? Thanks, Akriti. So this week, it's the 73rd General Assembly, which opened last week. And this is the week where you have heads of government, foreign ministers, uh, international leaders, all convening in New York to take part in the general debate, delivering their national statements. They'll be taking part in high-level side events. Um, they'll be undertaking bilateral meetings. So it's effectively been equated to sort of like speed dating or the diplomatic equivalent <laughs> of a sporting final um, because there are so many heads of government and ministers in town at the same time. Effectively, East Midtown in Manhattan shuts down and you know that there are going to be diplomats walking around with very little sleep this week trying to arrange <laughs> schedules. Um, but really what it is, is it's an annual opportunity for countries to outline their positions and national priorities on the global stage. Um, and it also provides a bit of a forum to garner political support on, on issues around uh, that are particularly challenging in yep. the multilateral space. This year has been characterised as particularly important given the concerns about the state of the rules-based order okay. and the increasing deficit in American leadership in support of it. And I think it's notable that in the speech that the UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres gave earlier this week, he noted that the world is suffering from a bad case of trust deficit disorder. Um, so I think it'll be interesting to see how that plays out over this week with different statements. So Lisa, Australia is being represented by Foreign Minister Maurice Spain. Does it matter that Prime Minister Scott Morrison is not attending? And what is Australia hoping to achieve uh, this year at the UNGA? Uh, what are the objectives or what is Australia's agenda really? So in short, many countries are represented at the level of Foreign Minister. Mm -hmm. And I think in, in past years, Australia has been ably represented by then Foreign Minister Julie Bishop. Yep. Maurice Payne is also not new to international summits given her role as Defence Minister, but this is her first... Unger, as they refer to it, the abbreviation. Um, so this week is no doubt going to afford her a valuable opportunity to introduce herself to counterparts yep. and reassure them of Australia's foreign policy priorities. Yep. And we know, for instance, that she'll be continuing to focus on pursuing accountability for MH17, along with a range of different issues that Australia has attached priority to. And I know that, for instance, her Twitter feed has already highlighted um, some of the bilateral meetings that she's been having with foreign ministers or their equivalent, including the UK, China, Indonesia and India. Um, and and we can expect that Minister Payne will deliver her first address as part of the general debate later this week as well. Yeah, I've been following her Twitter feed very closely as well. Um, and it is very good to see, drawing from my interests, uh, see her interaction with uh, Sushma Swaraj, the Indian External Affairs Minister. So following on from that, um, I read that um, President Trump's speech drew a lot of laughter and ridicule from world leaders. Uh, what did you think of it? 
It did at the beginning um, and I think this came after a comment that he made uh, where he said in less than two years my administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country and I think that's what prompted yeah, right. the, the laughter which is usually a little <laughs> bit uncharacteristic yeah. in that formal setting. But I think in terms of, of his speech there are three key takeaways and I don't think any of it's really a particular surprise for anyone who's been monitoring developments in US foreign policy um, in the last two years. First of all it was very domestic in focus. In many ways, you would think that he was delivering a speech not to members of other countries, but to a domestic constituency yep. um, in the US. And he focused very much so on the issue of American sovereignty mm -hmm. rather than the importance or indeed value that comes from multilateral cooperation, which is often what those speeches are sort of targeted at sure. with an international audience. Yep. Um, I think the second point is the focus of, uh, very much on US foreign policy um, priorities uh, rather than sort of some of the issues before the UN and its agenda. <laughs> So, for instance, you know, as we would expect, there were some claimed successes about what's happening with North Korea. Um, he rebuked sort of Iran for, for its foreign policy approaches, looked at the emerging trade war with China. Yeah. Um, so it was very much making that case about why certain policies are being pursued by America at this point in time. Notably, there was no mention of human rights or all these sorts of things that you come to expect from well. sort of those discussions within a UN forum. Yeah. And then I think Finally, it really signalled this continuing step back from American sort of engagement in multilateralism. And so we had references to the withdrawal from the Human Rights Council, the, the concerns about the role of the International Criminal Court and yep. how the US doesn't want to engage in that, funding to the United Nations, and also the note that, you know, the US is going to be looking at how it provides foreign assistance and how that aligns with foreign policy goals. So, you know, there's this idea that the US doesn't want to engage in multilateralism and in institutions it doesn't see as effective, it will simply withdraw yep. rather rather than trying to reform them. Yep. And this was really a dramatic contrast to what we saw from the UN Secretary-General yep. uh, earlier in the day on Tuesday. One notable thing that will um, have taken place by the time this, this discussion goes to air is, of course, that uh, President Trump will be presiding over the UN Security Council on Wednesday, right. uh, given that the US has the presidency of the council right now. So I think that will be interesting just to see whether he conforms tightly to that very procedure-focused protocol-governed body yep. um, or whether he decides that that's another forum that he wants to shake up a little bit. It's actually a relief that he didn't again talk about annihilating North Korea, which is an improvement from last year, I, I suppose. Uh, but it also, I think, goes to show the, I mean, it speaks to the very low level of uh, this political discourse in, in the US at the moment. Moving on to some positive news. New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has been in the news lately and uh, and for, for very good reason. She uh, took her uh, three-month-old daughter to the United Nations with her. And how do you think that is being received? Uh, look, I think quite positively from a lot of people, you know, it's been a bright spark in the Twitter feed this week, <laughs> seeing some of the, the tweets from her um, partner about her, you know, having her UN pass issued. Um, but I think more importantly, rather than sort of that, you know, good news story aspect to it, it I think reflects the, the fact that there is an ongoing discussion about gender equality um, in the UN. And this is a very tangible demonstration of um, engaging in discussions around work-life balance and what can happen in terms of family commitments and all those types of things and the reality of it that um, we need to be having these discussions so it's it's brought it out into the spotlight and I know that she referred to in one interview that this is odd because it doesn't happen very often hopefully that starts to change so I think it's quite a positive news story to see coming out of New York this week. Absolutely and New Zealand is again leading the way I think for women in peace and security spaces so good on her and um, well it was great talking to you Lisa thank thanks you very, very much. much. Thanks. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks.